Uh, invite all of you to open up your Bibles to, um, let's, let's turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Um, we had on the schedule a different teaching for this week. But after um, having conversations with several people and a couple of emails, um, I had a lot of people after last week's message say, boy, you really covered a whole lot, like in the last like the last five minutes of your sermon could have been a whole nother sermon. And that's what I kind of said, too. I go, I didn't plan this very well. And they said, you know what would be really great? Some people said it would be great if we had the notes. Like if you gave us the notes of the part, we just kind of skimmed over really fast. And I thought, okay, that would be great. And then other people said, maybe you could do that, that sermon later some other time. And I thought, okay, we could do it later. And then I finally, I kind of thought after getting all that feedback, I thought, you know what, we probably just need to just do, finish that sermon. And so uh, we're going to go back and revisit. So if you were here last week, we started a, a, a sermon in our series on your word is, word is truth, what the Bible says about itself. And last week we looked at this question, how did Jesus view the scriptures? And so that was part one. And we looked at various passages through the gospel and we'll do the same as well today. So um, we're going to kind of continue that study and Today will be a little bit different. This will be less um, sermon-like. So I won't have like an introduction. You know, we're not going to go through point by point and then like an application or anything. This is kind of a study. And I hope that's okay with all of you. Like we're just, this will be kind of like a guided study. Okay, so uh, less sermon-like and more study-like. But last week we looked at uh, a group, uh, an organization called Red Letter Christians. And I want to put the quote uh, up there again of what... Um, what they have said. This is Tony Campolo from the book Red Letter Revolution. Now, just as by, and I'm going to maybe repeat myself a little bit from last week. So do beg, beg your uh, um, your grace in that. But he said this. Um, by the way, Red Letter Christians refers to some versions of the Bible have red letters in them to let you know those are the words that Jesus spoke. Okay. And so this organization likes, values Jesus' word, which is a good thing. We should value Jesus' word. Um, but Tony Campolo said this. There was some criticism that it seemed like you only think are the most important parts of Scripture are the, the red letter parts, the part that Jesus has spoken. And to that charge or that accusation, he said, yes, not only do we say that the red letters are superior. Notice his word there. Superior to the black letters, which means what everybody else said. So what John said, or what Matthew wrote, or what Paul said, um, or the Old Testament, for instance, Isaiah or Moses. He says, not only do we say that the red letters are superior to the black letters of the Bible, but Jesus said they were. Jesus, over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, declared that some of the things that Moses taught had to be trans transcended by a higher morality. And so last week, we looked at that question. We said, is that true? Did Jesus really did that? Did he really say that? And um, the, the conclusion was, obviously, he didn't. Jesus had a tremendously high value of the scriptures. He did not value the scriptures, uh, or his words, over and against the rest of the scriptures. And then we, we, looked, we looked at primarily Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, because that's where they say that Jesus did this. We came to the conclusion that that's just not true. So 
Today, we're going to go finishing through some of the other ways in which Jesus affirmed the high, very high view of Scripture. He affirmed all of God's word as from God. And so let's uh, dig into our study. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages today. And so one of the first points we said last week was Jesus consistently treats the Old Testament historical narratives as straightforward records of fact. Jesus consistently treats the Old Testament historical narratives as straightforward records of historical fact. Many times Jesus quotes some story that happened in the Old Testament and he quotes it as if it was a real event that really happened and in many occasions he quotes that story to prove a point in his debates with religious leaders and the, um, the strength of the point depended upon those events really happening. Okay? And we're going to look at a couple of those. Here, uh, last week, I had, here's some of the many ways that Jesus references the Old Testament historical events. And I did print that out for you. So you do have that. Yeah, everybody get that thing? Okay. So if you do want to go back and actually look up those scripture references and you'll see the things that Jesus does reference from the Old Testament, I think it would be a very, it's a very fascinating study. Um, because if we're going to listen to Jesus' words, and what is Jesus' view about the Old Testament, we're going to see he really values very highly uh, the Old Testament scripture. So we're going to look at five. We'll go through five of these uh, pretty quick. First one was Noah and the real flood. So that's where we are in Matthew, excuse me, Luke chapter 17. Matthew also has it in chapter 24, but we'll look at uh, Luke's version in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus says this, and we'll, we'll start in verse 22. And he said, well, let's back up to verse 20, Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the um, scriptural scholars of that day. When, be, when asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, meaning he's right here in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Son of Man being a reference for when Jesus comes back to judge. Remember, Jesus says, I do not come to judge the world, but to save it. But that's because he's coming back a second time to judge. And he's referencing this phrase, the Son of Man. That was kind of the title for this person in the future who was going to come back from the Old Testament. So the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Jesus warns them, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That day when he comes back. But then he says this, and he pulls in a couple of our stories here. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. One of the many times Jesus foretold to his disciples of the cross before it happened. The cross was no accident. This was part of God's plan. And then in verse 26 it says, Just as it was in the days of Noah. 
just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, let me give you a picture of what it will be like when the Son of Man will come. It will be just like it was in the days of Noah. They, and he continues to explain like what that means. They are... They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So he mentions the ark as well, too. And the flood came and destroyed them all. So here. Jesus references the Noah. He references the ark and he references the flood. All of those come from Genesis chapter six through nine. Read the book. Don't see the movie. The book's much better. Okay, so I still haven't seen it. I have all this. Don't bother? Okay, good. I won't bother. Um, So he references Noah. He references the ark. He references the flood here. And this is all drawn right from Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And then he goes on and he says this as well too. And um, that's actually our second point. He references Lot, Abraham's nephew, Lot, verse 28. Likewise, or in a similar way, just as it was in the days of Lot... They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day when Lot and all Lot went out from Sodom. So this is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay. The story about Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah occurs in Uh, Genesis chapter 18, which is actually the third point. You can see he references this in other places as well, too. So Jesus is saying when the son of man, that's his code name for himself, when he comes back to judge, he says this is what it will be like. People will be just doing their thing, minding their own business, living life, and it will come suddenly and quickly. That's, That's his point. And he says, and there's a historical precedent for this. It has happened before. It happened with uh, Noah and the ark and the flood. The same thing happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Lot. So he mentions all of those things. I think it would be instructive for us to just keep reading on Jesus' point here, verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come back down to take them away. And, let, and likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. See, he even mentions Lot's wife. And whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's a main lesson for us as his disciples. If you seek to preserve your life in this life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life over, you will, you will keep it. I tell you, verse 34, in that night... There will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, the disciples said, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He said, it will be obvious. It will be obvious in that day where that will happen. So that's the lesson for us. But in terms of what it is that we're talking about this morning, we want to learn here what it is that Jesus, how Jesus views the scriptures. Many scholars today would say, well, Jesus, those events, we're not sure that those really were real historical events. Um, 
Those were just, you know, stories that were myths and legends that had kind of grown up through Israel's time. Um, and so we should kind of take them with a grain of salt. And then Jesus was just referencing those stories like he would, like we would reference a movie. It's just a lesson that can be gained from it. Uh, we're going to explore that in a second. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think he believed that these were real historical persons in a real historical event that really happened. Otherwise, his argument loses that force. He specifically says, just as it happened then, it will happen here. Let's look at another one. Here's a, here's a great example. We'll mention Abraham. This is John chapter 8. And he says this in uh, John 8, verse 56. And I shared this story before. Jesus has been debating with the religious leaders, as has often happened. I don't think Jesus was going and looking for fights with these guys. These guys were coming to him, and they weren't just looking for fights. It says many occasions they tried to kill Jesus. And so they come to him, and they have this discussion this long debate, it takes up most of chapter, uh, chapter 8. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 56. And we'll start in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Ooh, that's, that was saying some pretty harsh things there. And that you have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So now the Jews kind of come back to him, and they bring up the name Abraham. We are introduced to Abraham in Genesis as well. Genesis chapter 12 takes up most of the, the rest of Genesis. And so they bring up Abraham. And so Jesus seizes on that fact. And he says this. Notice what he says in verse 54 through 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. Whoa. That is a serious charge to say to the religious leaders, you have not known God. And he says, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And in this sentence, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So what Jesus is claiming here is that Abraham knew of Jesus, which what Jesus is saying here is I've existed. I mean, I didn't exist as Jesus. I existed as the eternal son and I became flesh in the person of Jesus. But he's saying Abraham knew of me and he saw of my day coming. That's a, that's a very key line. You need to underline this. This is a very one of the most important words of Jesus. Not that we're saying some are more important than others. We don't want to do that. But um, that's kind of would defeat the point of this sermon, right? Okay. Um, so your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. Notice the past tense. He saw it and was glad. 
to let you know of the force of what Jesus is saying here, the context shows us. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham was, I existed. He says before Abraham was, I am. It sounds strange, a little weird, right? What's Jesus doing? Where do we hear this, this name, this title thing, I am, before? Moses is wandering around in the wilderness, and he sees a burning bush. And he notices this is a strange sight. It's a bush that's burning, and it's, uh, it's on fire, but it's not burning up. Last night, we were gathering around with our neighbors at a campfire, and it's now become an annual tradition to take the live Christmas tree that's been drying out for five months and to throw it on the fire, and it just engulfs in flames. Have you ever done this? It's pretty fun. There's like uh, this throwing in an, you know, a huge Christmas tree on the campfire, and the flames were probably higher than the ceiling, maybe 12, 15 feet. And I just immediately thought, ah, a burning bush, you know. Moses' bush was different. His bush didn't burn up. And he notices this strange sight. He goes over and he hears this, this voice call out, Moses, Moses. And he says, take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses has this conversation with this voice in the burning bush. And it is the Lord God, the creator of the universe. The father of Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Moses asks, he gives, God gives him this commission to go to, the, to Egypt, to go rescue God's people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And, um, and so Moses asks the name. And this voice says, I am who I am. Tell him, I am sent you. I am sent you. It's the word Yahweh. When your Old Testaments, when you see the all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's the covenant name that God had given to Moses, that he was to be known by. That was the name that was to be exalted and to be honored. And notice what Jesus says here. He goes, no, not only if Abraham see my day. Yeah, sure, I'm not yet 50 years old, but he saw my day. And he, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, want to know how serious this is? Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him because he, uh, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because Jesus was blaspheming. He was calling himself God here. But Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite passages in scripture. But a historical person. He believed Abraham was a historical person, and he didn't believe Abraham was a historical person. He knew Abraham was a historical person, and he knew for a fact that Abraham knew of his existence as the eternal son of God even before uh, in, in Abraham's day. That's, a, that's an important, important point. So here, let me give another one. Jonah and the people of Nineveh as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. So 
So Jesus is referenced a real Noah, a real ark, a real flood, a real Lot, a real Lot's wife, a real Sodom, a real Gomorrah, a real Abraham. And now we, we see a real Jonah and a real people of Nineveh in Matthew chapter 12. We'll start in verse 38. Yeah, we'll start in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, Jesus answers, but he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, many of you maybe had Sunday school lessons. You've heard of the story of Jonah, right? Jonah was called to go to the people of Nineveh and tell the people of Nineveh to repent because judgment was coming on their city because of their wickedness and their evil hearts. And so God sends Jonah. And Jonah says, I don't want to go and you know, preach to the Ninevites. So he decides to go away. He goes down to Tarshish. He gets into a boat and he tries to sail far away from God in the exact opposite direction. And God causes a storm over the waters uh, the people who are manning the boat going, there's a problem, and I think it's this guy. Let's throw him over. And they throw him over, and he gets swallowed by fish, and the fish takes him back, right? It's an incredible story. Like, is there a fish that can actually swallow uh, a person? And this is the one that many people today, many modern people go, I just have a problem with that. You know, and so they try to explain it away as like, you know, Maybe that's just a myth or a legend and just a fanciful story and it's not really true. Maybe that didn't really happen. But Jesus believed it really happened. Because he quotes no, no, or Jonah. And he says specifically, Jonah, the, the sign for this people, this adulterous generation, is going to be the same as the sign for Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up now. So he now he not only references Jonah, he's actually talking to the people of Nineveh now. Okay, So he believed those were real people. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Noah, and behold, something greater Excuse me, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So real Jonah, a real Ninevites, and a real event has happened. And this, again, some try to take this to say, boy, this is just, Jesus wasn't being literal. He was just using myth or fiction and stories, and he was just drawing a lesson from those stories. But it doesn't have the same power, does it? If, you know, you kind of reference something, a real event that's going to happen in the future by referencing a fictional event that you know to be a fictional event, right? I like how this scholar from the end of the 19th century wrote this. In, in answering those kind of questions, he kind of outlines that view that some people think, oh, Jesus was using, just using myths or stories. And then he goes, and yet we are to suppose... Following their line of thinking. Yet we are to suppose him, that's Jesus, to say that imaginary persons who at 
The preaching of an imaginary prophet repented in imagination shall rise up in that day and condemn the actual impenitence of those his actual hearers. See how it's kind of absurd to suggest it loses all of its power. So this was real. Jesus believed these were real. And the, uh, the irony is that there are many of those in the red-letter Christian camp that want to take some of those stories in the Old Testament that our modern minds have trouble with, you know, having trouble to reconcile these kind of miracles and stuff. But let's just eliminate, let's forget and don't focus on those. Let's just focus on Jesus' words about loving one another and serving one another and caring for the poor. Let's just focus on that. But if we tell, go to look at Jesus' very words, he affirms that all of those things that they want to deny are actually true. So I don't think that works. I don't think that works. So that's the first, that's the first point. Uh, Jesus consistently treats Old Testament historical narratives as straightforward records of fact. The second one is this. Jesus doesn't use scripture just with humans. I did spend some time on this last week. Because the argument goes, well, Jesus was just playing the religious leader's game according to the religious leader's rules on the religious leader's turf. And so Jesus was just playing along, but he didn't you know, really believe these things. He was just engaging them. But that, that doesn't fit with what Jesus does here. He quotes scripture to the devil. Because the scripture is authoritative. Matthew chapter 4. The devil comes and tempts him. You know, to, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Three times the devil tempts Jesus. And three times Jesus responds back with, it is written in the scriptures. And he cites passages from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, chapter 6. So I won't spend any more time on that because we saw that. Uh, we spent a little bit more time on that uh, last week. Jesus doesn't use scripture just in humans. He's not playing by human rules and, you know, a human game uh, according, to their, uh, according to their rules and standards. He quotes scripture to Satan because scripture is God speaking. What better thing can you say to counteract what Satan would say than by what God says. What an encouragement for us too, right? When we get thoughts in our head that are not true, we should remind ourselves the truth of Scripture. So, Jesus doesn't use Scripture just with humans. Jesus cites the Old Testament Scriptures after his resurrection too. We see this in Luke chapter 24. And we did this the week after Easter, Luke chapter 24. There are some who would say, well, Jesus, he was quoting scripture, but then after he died, he kind of knew the mind of God better. And so he didn't need to quote scripture after that. That was just something he did during his earthly ministry. But that just doesn't fit with the text. Matthew chapter 4. Excuse me, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 24, when he meets with the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And they're really down and they're discouraged because Jesus had died and he was buried. And they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus says this in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He references 
what the Old Testament says, the prophets. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He does it again in verse 32. He does it again in verse 44 and verse 45. So Jesus quotes scripture even after his resurrection. Number four, Jesus also cites human authors of Scripture as God speaking. We saw this as well last week. We did spend more time on this last week, so I just want to skim this part. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through uh, 6, 7, it's in that that area there. But the Pharisees came up to to test him and to ask him about the the legality of Divorce. It was a big debate that happened among the religious leaders in those days. And Jesus answered uh, in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's referencing to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Jesus' always mind is just formed and shaped by Scripture. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But it's interesting to uh, note how Jesus says this. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. But when you go back to those passages, it's the writer who says this. Was it? It doesn't say, and the Lord said this. It's the writer who put those words down. But Jesus says, if it's written in the Old Testament, that's God speaking. That's, that's what you catch from what he is saying here. Let's, let's try to say it again. It says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning said, and then he quotes in the Old Testament passage that isn't God speaking. Does this make sense? Are you tracking it? Okay. So anytime something is written in the Old Testament, Jesus says, that's God talking. So to put it this way, for Jesus, what scripture said, the human author said, for what scripture said and the human authors said or wrote, God said. So all three of these we kind of covered a little bit last week. So I want to get to two more. You got time for two more? Okay. Ten more. We got time for ten more. Okay. Uh, When debating with the religion... Well, you're going to get me excited because these next two are, are great. I like these. When debating with the religious leaders over doctrinal matters, he regularly expounds from the Old Testament. So the religious leaders, and that, that's a perfect example right here is in Matthew chapter 19. It was a religious debate that existed because, you know, among the religious leaders of Jesus' day concerning this whole issue of divorce. And so Jesus quotes scripture authoritatively to answer that question. He doesn't just debate, well, this rabbi said or this rabbi said. He goes, no, didn't you go, let's go back to the scriptures, okay? Another example of this would be in Matthew chapter 22. So just turn a few other pages. Matthew chapter 22. This is awesome. I think this one's awesome. Matthew chapter 22, if you know the context of Matthew, this is, this is in the final week of Jesus' life. So he's back in Jerusalem. Uh, the cross is several days away. Uh, the resurrection is yet to happen. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And the religious, I mean, it's getting, uh, it's getting tense here with Jesus and the religious leaders. 
and they ask this. It's just a little short one. You, you, if you've read through your Bible or read through Matthew, it's just a little short section, and you may miss it, um, but it's very, very significant. Verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. Now, while the Pharisees, here they are again, were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Okay? Jesus asked them a question. Now, many times they came up to him with questions to try to stumble, uh, to try to trick him, catch him up, to get him to stumble. And so, uh, but they were never effective at doing that. They're always trying to trap Jesus with difficult questions. And so I kind of love this because here is Jesus kind of turning the tables on them, so to speak, by offering them a question. So Jesus asks them a question, verse 42, saying, what do you think, guys? Um, the Christ, the Messiah, a figure that's talked about in the Old Testament that's uh, foreshadowed that this person who is going to come, he's going to be the king over Israel, he's going to rule and reign, he's going to defeat God's enemies and God's people's enemies, uh, and the, the, there's lots of different terms for him, the suffering servant, or uh, the, the term here is Messiah, means the anointed one. In our New Testament, it's through the Greek, it's usually translated uh, Christos, Christ. So when you see Messiah, Christ, those are synonyms. It's the same, just one's the Hebrew spelling, one's the, the Greek spelling. So Jesus is asking about this figure, this Messiah, this ruler, this coming future leader over all of Israel. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, son in the ancient Greek world, this could have been used for not just the immediate, so like a father and a son, but it could have been used for any other of the descendants of a particular person. So, you know, a grandson, great-great-grandson, in this day, they could have referred to them as their son, or their, you know, we could, some translations have it as descendant, okay? And there is a big debate in the Old Testament. There's many places in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah being the son of David. And actually, we should look at one. Here, I'll give you a list of verses. You could look at them. And if you want to write this down, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. That's a big one. Psalm 89, verse 4. Isaiah 11, 1. 11, verse 1, and also 11, verse 10. And Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Those are all references. Those are some. There's others, too. But those are some of the key references that talk about this coming person, Messiah, Christ, is a son of David. And I'm going to look, I'm going to read to you um, from the, the one in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think this will help with the context, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And... Um, God ends up saying, no, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. Um, I'm going to, your, your son, uh, Solomon, is going to do that. But it, notice what it says. This is in uh, 2 Samuel, verses uh, 12 through 14. Um, God says, we'll start in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judge over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. This is God speaking to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, God saying this is, by the way, through the prophet. Um, uh, the Lord declares to you what the Lord, that the Lord will make for you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning you're, you're going to be dead, you're going to be dead and buried, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, meaning this is a son, a descendant of yours, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so the, in those, many of the, in the Jewish thought, this was a picture of the Messiah. This isn't just referring to uh, Solomon or Jeroboam or Rehoboam or you know, any of David's descendants or any of the other kings of Israel. Uh, Josiah or um, Hezekiah is, is they, they said no no this is some future person this promise is given that there's going to be a son of David and he's going to be Messiah so now back to our passage Matthew chapter 22 Matthew chapter 22 he says this are you tracking with me this is okay Jesus asks, okay, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, right? Because they're just quoting from the second Samuel seven, Psalm 89, Isaiah 11. They're saying well, the, the son of David. And then notice what Jesus does here. This blows my mind. I'm sure it blew their mind as well, too. He said to them, verse 43, how is it then? Okay. You say it's a, this, this Messiah, whose son is he? You say he's the son of David. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and he quotes Psalm 110, and he quotes verse 1 there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, till I put your enemies under your feet. Now notice what Jesus has done here. Let me, um, oh, where is it? So um, they're saying that the, the, the Messiah is going to be a son of David. And they say that that's from the scriptures. This is what that says. But Jesus goes, huh, that's interesting. Because in Psalm 110, David refers to the Messiah as his Lord. Psalm 110 says the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. So David is writing, the Lord says to my Lord. So David, who's the king of Israel, who has no lords, he's the highest, he has no superior officer. He's saying, uh, the Lord, I see the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Does it, do you see what, what Jesus is doing here? He's saying that there's the Lord, and then there's David's Lord or master. And then, he, then you have David, the anointed king of Israel, and then you have David's son and descendant. So they're saying, well, the Messiah would be, coming, would be a descendant of David. But Jesus is saying, wait a second here. Um, David is the king. He has no master. So this is saying Yahweh is saying to my master. If David then calls him Lord, then how can he be his son? So see how he says this in verse 45. If David calls the Messiah Lord then how can he be his son? It's kind of confusing. I know. Are you lost? Show of hands if you're lost. No? Good. Oh, one. Okay. David is, Jesus points out from the scripture, he says, hmm, that's interesting because David, you say that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David's, but David 
already saw his Messiah existing before him and was already a ruler before him. See, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is David writing this. If David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus is proving, this is one other passage where Jesus proves from the Old Testament that the Messiah is existed, that his existence actually predates David, just similarly like it did in Abraham. He existed before Abraham. He existed before David. He's not his just his descendant biologically, physically. He's existed before him. This is pretty profound. And I think it took me several times to figure out what he was saying here. And as a matter of fact, you can see how profound what Jesus is doing here, taking their very scriptures and proving, um, correcting their thinking on this. Notice what it says in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So Jesus would get questions. They'd try to trip him up, try to trip him up. And then he says, okay, you say the Messiah, whose son is he? Oh, he's David's son. Oh, really? He's David's son. If he's David's son, then how come David spoke of him before he had sons? You know, how, how could David speak of him as his Lord and master when he was the king and there were no other lords and masters? Now, he's more than his son. He's always existed. And he is, he is the Lord's right-hand man, right? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. So they're sitting here going, busted. We don't have an answer to this. Right from the Old Testament scriptures, it shows the Messiah has existed before David, right? That's what he's saying. And so they're at this point, they didn't ask him another single question. They couldn't because they stumped it. They, he stumped them with this one more so than any other thing. It's really brilliant, actually. Actually, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I wrote brilliant, brilliant, brilliant in my notes. So if you still have questions about that, you can come and uh, talk to me about it. I would be glad to try and explain it. One more, one more uh, additional point. All of scripture was assumed as one unified whole. For Jesus, all of the scripture was God's word and could not be divided or broken. John chapter 10. Turn to John, uh, John 10. Another debate, another issue with the religious leaders. Verse 22, at the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. So he's in Jerusalem in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah or Christ, tell us plainly. Now, it says that they were trying to kill him all, you know, many times in John's gospel up to this point. So they knew, they understood what he was saying. They just were wanting to get like definitive proof from him. Just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says this in verse 30, this key point, I and the Father are one. To this, I mean, this many, there's many people who say Jesus never said in the Bible, excuse me, Jesus never said in the Bible that he was God. No, he may have not said those words, I am God, 
But he'd said many times he was God. Before Abraham uh, was, I am. That's a claim that he's God. And this one here, too. I and the Father are one. He's claiming to be God. If you don't believe me, read verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. To which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you. I like how they explain it. Oh, we're not going to, stone, you know, like, like it's a really calm scene or something. Um, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, and this is brilliant as well, too. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now, notice what Jesus does there. He's quoting from Psalm 82. We're almost done. Psalm 82. Small little psalm. It's not one that would usually get people would set out to, you know, it's not like Psalm 23 or anything like that. But I want to read it. Psalm 82. It's just eight verses. It's a psalm of Asaph, and it's uh, it's words of judgment from God against his appointed rulers and leaders and judges in that day, in that time. Okay. God has taken his place in the divine council, it says. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Okay? Now, he's not saying uh, that there are multiple deities or polytheism. Elsewhere in the scriptures say there's just one God. Um, but he's talking about this kind of divine status given to rulers and leaders over a people. And then these are the words of God saying this. How long will you, speaking to this council, these, these leaders... He calls them gods, lowercase g. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. Now, this is him describing them now. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then God says, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince or prince or ruler. Arise, O God, O God judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So he's not addressing other gods here. I mean, that becomes clear. He says, you guys are going to end up dying. He's talking about humans. And God is, he's not acknowledging the existence of pagan deities. He's, uh, he's addressing earthly judges and earthly kings, but he's using this kind of terminology as, in, as gods. So it's a psalm where God is addressing human rulers and human leaders, but they're failing and they're, they're doing wicked. They're supposed to do good. So Jesus' point here, back to John chapter 10, Jesus' point here in quoting this is to point out the fact that God uses this term, gods, for them. Jesus, the the point is, if human rulers and leaders, given their appointed role as representatives of God, can in a sense be called God, then it's perfectly acceptable for one who truly is the Son of God to use that title. Notice what he says. If he who called them gods to whom, this is verse 35, if he who called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, 
verse 36, do you say of him, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying the scriptures themselves use the term gods. But notice the second point, and it's right there in the hyphens, and scripture cannot be broken. What Jesus is saying, all of it is one unified whole. You are not able to or allowed to pick and choose which passages to believe and which ones to not, which ones are doctrinally acceptable and which ones are not. He says, all and scripture cannot be broken. And he's not suggesting it. Notice he asked the question, if God called them gods, he's not questioning it. He says, and scripture cannot be broken. This is a major point of his argument. Scripture cannot be broken. And they don't contest him on that. Everybody knew that Scripture could not be broken. Again, Jesus' point is, if God has given that word to describe them, and he calls them gods, and Scripture cannot be broken, then it's perfectly acceptable for the one who is the Son of God to be called that. You can't call me blasphemy. You can't say I'm blaspheming. Because I am using the term appropriately. Does that make sense? Verse 37. Let's just keep reading. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So the assumption in Jesus' argument is scripture can't be broken. All, every single word in scripture, down to the use of one term in an obscure psalm, Jesus, is, Jesus uses and then says, and all of that counts. For Jesus, all the scripture was God's word and could not be broken or divided. And as I said, everyone, there's, there's, some say today, everyone picks and chooses what parts they want to believe and whatnot. And even many of those in the red letter Christian camp do this. They argue for this often. And they, that's why they gladly say, you know what, everybody's picking and choosing. So if we're all picking and choosing, I'm just going to pick Jesus' words. Right? You know, some of those black words are confusing and seem really difficult to understand. So we're just going to stay with Jesus' words. But, hey, just sticking with Jesus' words isn't going to be easier to understand. Jesus uses the very words that they're discrediting, and he uses them. And he believes that all of them are true. Jesus did not break up or divide any parts of the scripture. He would not allow in any kind of picking or choosing all of the scripture uh, even though it's diverse, it's written by many different authors over many different periods of time, many different phases of redemptive history. All of it, nevertheless, is one unified whole. That's the lesson today. Scripture cannot be broken. Every single word in Scripture is completely true and completely reliable. And Jesus believed this. The religious leaders believe that. We should believe that as well, too. Now, it brings up a question. Wow, you're saying every single word. I'm not allowed to pick and choose. What about some of the really difficult kind of passages of Scripture? What do we do with, with those? Like, you know, it says some things in the Old Testament that, like, are we supposed to be doing those kinds of things? 
Um, you know, can we not eat lobster? How many of you like lobster? The scripture says we're not supposed to eat lobster, right? Okay, well, what you've probably heard this in discussions or debate, you know, in the media and those kinds of things. Maybe you saw an episode of West Wing a long time ago that influenced your thinking about the Bible. I'll get to that someday. Um, you know, should women wear head coverings? That's not the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. How do we do that? Well, there's, there's excellent... Uh, we have to understand what the Scripture says. And so what I thought we would do the rest of this summer, after this series ends, we want to field the kind of questions that you have about the Bible. So there are some parts of the... You read something in the Bible, it's really difficult to understand. It's a really tricky passage. Uh, they're hard sayings of Jesus or difficult passages in the Bible. What I want to do is spend some time um, studying those passages. So if you have a question, you know, I read that First Corinthians chapter uh, 11 about the head coverings. Am I supposed to wear a head covering? You know, should I do that? Um, we're going to look at that passage. Any other passages you might think of, you want to address, we're going to spend several weeks answering, looking at those, uh, those questions that you would have. So it's a different series. I'm, I would be very excited about that. Do many of you have questions? For, okay. Not now, but like for then. Yeah. Well, we'll do that. But the point is, uh, for today, every single word in Scripture is completely true, completely reliable. And that, that we get by following the red letters. Amen? Okay. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word, and as Jesus said, your word is truth. And as Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them by your truth, by your word. God, we ask that you sanctify us by your word, that you set us apart because of what you have spoken in your scriptures, that we would not be like the Pharisees who have hard and unbelieving hearts and are looking to trip Jesus up. May we have humble and contrite spirits and soft hearts that gladly trust him and what he says because he himself says he died in our place. God, give us your spirit to help us to understand your word. And may we have the same passion that Jesus had for your scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you this weekend.